Hello, everyone. It is October 2021, and welcome to Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. I can hardly believe that it's October already. In two months, this year will be over, and I'm so thankful that you've been a listener. If you're new, welcome to the podcast. This is EB Medicine's free podcast based on its two publications, Emergency Medicine Practice and Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice. If you missed the announcement last month, the EB Medicine mobile app is available to you in the Apple stores for free. You can now access your subscriptions to emergency medicine practice and pediatric emergency medicine practice on your mobile device and search them at the bedside. And remember, the app is in beta. There are so many features still yet to come. The excitement is palpable, and I really can't wait to share them all with you as we release those. Meanwhile, enjoy looking through the monthly issues on your mobile device. And don't forget, if you're not a subscriber, you can still go to ebmedicine.net and subscribe today and take part in the free Starbucks gift card offer that is currently available on the website. This month's episode features the emergency medicine practice issue on cervical spine injuries authored by Dr. Jera Almonte and Dr. Pawar. It's a fantastic issue, and I highly recommend you go read it and look through the numerous figures and tables that we're going to be referencing in today's discussion. And so without any further ado, here's Dr. Jera Almonte. I'm Joff Jera Almonte. I'm one of the assistant resident directors for the Sinai EM residency in New York City, and I work clinically at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. And thank you so much for joining us on Amplify today. We are talking about the October emergency medicine practice issue titled Emergency Department Management of Cervical Spine Injuries, and you are one of the authors, so thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thank you for doing this. This is actually a bigger topic than I realized. Just in the first line of the issue, it talks about how there are 18,000 spinal cord injuries a year in the United States, which is a much higher number than I anticipated. Yeah, it's a tremendous morbidity and mortality, unfortunately. And you also mentioned that about 60% of these occur in the cervical spine alone. Yeah, I think I think it's the most commonly injured area just because the the vectors and the flexibility that allow us, you know, so much mobility there also make it prone to blunt force trauma and injury, unfortunately. That is surprising and pretty alarming, really. I didn't realize it was that large a uh, portion of our traumatic injuries and that that many of them occurred in the neck. So another interesting percentage or statistic that you quoted in there was 9% of these injuries can actually be missed initially, which seems rather high as well. Yeah, hard to get a great sense of the number of missed injuries. I have a lot of historical data that these statistics come from, but I think there is a real revolution in sort of pre-hospital trauma care and especially care of the spine that occurred in the 1960s to 1980s. And that was really driven in part by the recognition that a lot of spinal cord injuries are, are missed early on. And the theory is that sort of a missed injury with, you know, inappropriate handling or rough handling or failure to protect the spine can result in increased morbidity and mortality down the road. But even with all of our modern decision aids and, and scans, we still, there are still, you know, missed injuries. And so we have to be very cautious of those. And it's also interesting to read that the United States specifically has a significantly higher rate of spinal cord injury than other industrialized nations. 
Yeah, I was surprised about this one too, and I really don't have a great explanation. No one seems to really have a great explanation for it, uh, but certainly we do have a much higher rate than other European or Australian or uh, Asian industrialized nations. I mean, potentially this is due to our, our higher reliance on motor vehicle transport and, and you know more people driving their own cars around because motor vehicle accidents remain the leading cause of spinal cord injury among you know, sort of the vast majority of the adult population. But there's no real agreed upon reason for this, but we recognize this is a disproportionate burden in the United States as compared to other industrialized countries. Now, the issue itself is chocked full of fantastic figures and tables. So we'll just start with the first one, which is figure one, just breaking down the demographics by race and also the types of injuries. So more interesting facts regarding cervical spine fractures. There is a racial disproportionate equivalent of black Americans. So they're, they're 22 to 24% of injuries, but only 13% of the population. Yeah, that's exactly true. There wasn't a lot of data breaking down the cause of that if there was, if there were disproportionately higher rates of certain types of injuries among black American populations, certainly they, they bear a disproportionate burden of the volume of injury in the United States. And then by mechanism, it's almost even between motor vehicles and falls, you know, slightly more motor vehicles, about 38% versus 32% or so falls. And then the third leading category being just violence, that's about 14%. Yeah, I mean, I think most of this is be penetrating um, from gunshot wounds, so still assaults account for some part of that as well. But, but I mean, far and away, as of those trauma falls and, and motor vehicle accidents account for the vast majority of injuries. I think it's interesting to note that sports injuries still um, play, as compared to other types of trauma, minority, but a fairly sizable minority of, of injuries that are around 7 or 8%. And typically because you consider those people who suffer sports injuries are going to be younger and have a uh, comparatively longer sort of lifetime morbidity and mortality from, from cervical spine injuries. All right. Well, there were some interesting tidbits you mentioned regarding anatomy. So when we're talking about the anatomy of cervical spine fractures, what kinds of things do we need to keep in mind when we're trying to categorize these? I think you know, the first most important question to always ask yourself when you're looking at a cervical spine injury or any spinal injury for that matter, is it going to be a stable or an unstable injury? And so a stable injury is one in which there's not going to be any further or additional displacement of the bony elements with sort of normal physiologic loads. And so a great example of a stable injury would be the, the, the class of just anterior compression or wedging deformity, whereas unstable injuries can have progressive deformity with even normal loads or minor manipulation. And so an example of that would be the, the C1 burst fracture, the Jefferson fracture, or the bilateral articular process fracture, the C2, the Hangman's fracture. And so these are clinically relevant because, of course, if there is you know, deformity or that, that takes place, the, the movement of the bones relative to each other, it causes the potential for compromise of the spinal canal and, and cord damage. And so these are really the ones where we, you know, practice routine spinal, you know, motion restriction to, to minimize the potential for uh, additional deformity or, or compromise the canal at those, at those injured segments. Now, table two in your article includes a list with some excellent diagrams and some examples of radiographic images for these unstable spinal fractures. The vast majority of them occur actually in the upper cervical spine. We're talking C1 and C2. Yeah, these are the ones that are kind of classically tested on, uh, which is sort of why we included them in the 
pictographic form in this in this edition. So, you know, the acronym uh, Hangman bit off Jefferson's thumb, sort of going through the different the Hangman's fracture, burst fracture, which is the bilateral articular process C two, the Jefferson's, which is the burst, which is a burst fracture C one, and uh, type two and type three odontoid fracture, all of which can are the sort of classic unstable ones, as well as bilateral facet dislocation. And then occipital dislocation, the other examples of unstable injuries that occur in the, in the cervical spine. In the lower spine regions, we don't get tested on those fractures as much. Obviously, we didn't include those pictographically. But there is a general concept you can apply to determining whether or not a fracture is going to be unstable. And that is to kind of conceptualize the spine as consisting of either two or, or three columns. So there's an anterior column, which is the vertebral bodies themselves, and a posterior column, which is the posterior elements, so the, the, the lamina and the connective tissue and the, the posterior parts. And then a middle column that's more conceptually helpful and think about the thoracic and lumbar spine, which is the posterior aspect of the vertebral body. And so in general, if the, only the anterior column is involved, isn't again that, that uh, simple compression wedge fracture, that's going to be a stable injury. But if you ever see a fracture in which you, you look at it and there's clear involvement of both the anterior and posterior columns or the anterior and middle column, as in a you know, lumbar burst fracture with retropulsion of the, with, with involvement of the posterior cortex or a chance fracture, or a, you know, for example, that that anterior teardrop fracture in the cervical spine, where there is an avulsion off the the anterior um, portion of the of the vertebral body, but then a separation of the posterior elements involved, you know, suggesting that there's damage that the posterior ligament. Those are all going to be unstable fractures. So really looking at your, your radiographs and trying to figure out if there's isolated anterior column involvement or anterior plus middle or posterior column involvement can kind of help you make this decision in real time in the clinical environment as opposed to having to sort of rely on you know, memorizing fracture pattern types or, or diagrams. And this is nicely detailed also in, in figure two in the issue itself. You've got uh, some excellent diagrams there. And again, some example radiographs, which if you're listening, I highly recommend you go look at. Sometimes it's a little hard to describe these without having a visual aid, but it's it's really nicely detailed there in figure two. When we are talking about injuries to the cervical spine, there was a distinction between primary and secondary injuries. Tell me about that. I think, I think that, you know, we're talking about two different things so far as we've been discussing sort of the bony injuries, spinal fractures, which are different than spinal cord injuries. I mean, conceptually, they, they oftentimes occur together, but you can have certainly one without the other. We have plenty of patients we see with, with you know, spinal fractures who don't have an associated spinal cord injury. And, and conversely, many patients with a spinal cord injury without bony involvement. But it, when thinking about spinal cord injuries... Yeah, there are two, exactly that's right, there are two sort of disparate injury, I guess, mechanisms. The first is going to be the primary injury, which is the exact, the actual mechanical disruption that occurs to the cord itself. And there are, these can be sort of contusions, they can be lacerations or attraction injuries on the, on the nervous tissue. And so the first is sort of this primary mechanical disruption that occurs in the, you know, the, at the exact time and the you know, milliseconds following injury. And this is something that we don't have any power, you know, as physicians to really intervene on except through you know, better injury prevention practices. And then following that primary injury, 
there's a cascade of secondary events that result from inflammation and activation of, of cytokine pathways, cellular apoptosis, concentration of, of inflammatory you know, mediators that result in cell death and ischemia, progressive ischemia. And that sort of secondary injury cascade is where a lot of the additional morbidity from spinal cord injuries occurs and presents an opportunity for us to intervene as physicians by either you know, potentially preventing some of the, the secondary injury cascades as we've tried to do with glucocorticoids, for example, or, or at least supporting the physiology and limiting the effect of potential secondary injury. So minimizing things we know exacerbate the secondary injury cascades, such as hypotension, hypoxia, and ongoing compression of the, of the neural elements. Good. That's actually a helpful differentiator. So we started out talking about the bony anatomy for cervical spine fractures, and then for those that have related spinal cord injury, breaking them down into primary or what's immediately occurring as a result of the injury, and then secondary things that we can actually prevent, like specifically you mentioned hypoperfusion, hypoxia, perhaps altered vascular flow for some reason, and edema, all of those things we should hopefully be able to impact with medical therapy after the injuries occur. There is a nicely detailed table discussing the differential diagnosis for really primarily all things traumatic to the neck and all things painful. And it's it's quite exhaustive, but the, the biggest thing there to keep in mind, in addition to just the fracture-related injuries, I found helpful was the description of the non-traumatic injuries as well, which can be a little bit more challenging. So tell me a little bit more about those kinds of injuries. Yeah, I think, you know, in general, we, we people come to the ER, it's usually with acute, you know, sort of traumatic neuraxial pain to the neck or back. We're pretty good at recognizing that the disease entity we have to rule out is a fracture or, you know, ligamentous injury and associated cord injury. But there are plenty of other etiologies that can cause more indolent pain with which, you know, sometimes present with a history of trauma. Like I felt last week and now have persistent worsening back pain, for example. And some of these other, you know, non-traumatic etiologies can present in a similar manner where trauma rather than being the primary etiology is sort of a red herring in the history. And so especially if there's not a clear temporal association between a you know, purported traumatic event and, and the onset of pain or development of symptoms, it's important to keep these things in mind. So and probably the most sneaky of these, of course, is spinal epidural abscess, which is classically missed at least a couple of times before finally being diagnosed. And so always, you know, asking patients about risk factors for those and infectious or inflammatory symptoms. Tumors with cord compression are less common, but certainly something to consider. And I was asking about, you know, if they had any constitutional symptoms or history of cancer. One other thing that we can see and have had a few cases of actually at the shop recently are, are epidural hematomas, mm. sometimes associated with mild trauma or even spontaneous in the patient taking anticoagulation. And they'll present in a similar manner with sort of unremitting back pain or illogical symptoms. And so always keeping in the back of your mind that that could be the cause of back pain, you know, sort of indolent back pain following a mild trauma or even atraumatic in, in the patient at high risk. Yeah, those are definitely the challenging diagnoses to make. When we're talking about the evaluation of the common emergency department patient, there's a, a good deal of discussion around pre-hospital care and what we used to do, what we then developed, and now what we're trying to discover some more evidence for. Tell me about some of the controversy in the pre-hospital care arena. So I think there were one controversy that had more or less settled this point in time was whether or not to apply sort of clinical decision aids or risk stratification tools to rule out patients for a spinal injury in the pre-hospital environment. And there's consensus across the board um, from both the American Academy of Neurosurgeons, the Eastern Association of Trauma, 
and a variety of other groups that have guidelines for the management of patients uh, with potential spinal injuries in the pre-hospital environment that routine spinal immobilization of all patients based solely upon a mechanism that could result in a spinal injury is not recommended. And so that it's reasonable to provide some degree of pre-hospital assessment. So typically these meet the nexus criteria. So patients awake, alert, and evaluable without, you know, focal midline neck tenderness who has a normal neurological exam can essentially be cleared from a spinal a spinal cord injury. But we frequently, of course, many of our trauma patients don't meet these criteria due to you know, intoxication or, or you know, traumatic brain injury or for whatever reason being un- unavaluable or other painful distracting injuries. So the question then becomes what to do with those patients. And there is definitely a consensus that um, a delayed deterioration of patients with spinal cord injury can occur. And some historical data based on sort of case series and retrospective case series that strongly suggests this is associated with, in some cases, sort of rough or inappropriate handling of patients with a spinal cord injury that results in, in, in progression of symptoms or development of a, new, of a new deficit. And so these patients should be managed in a way that minimizes, restricts the motion of the neuraxial skeleton and spine to limit the chance that an unstable bony injury results in development or worsening of of spinal canal compromise. I think it's important to note, though, that the nature of patients with spinal cord injuries across the board is to decompensate due to, you know, even if they have a totally stable, even if they are maintained in total immobilization, that edema and swelling within the cord can lead to progressive ischemia of the of the injured um, neurons, and you can have ascending or uh, progressive lesions even in the absence of gross mobility or or, or or poor handling of the patient. So the simple fact that a patient has new or progressive deficits does not in and of itself mean that they were necessarily mishandled or roughly handled, or that there was a failure of immobilization. So I think we have to keep that in mind. I'm going to interrupt just to summarize because you made like. Excellent points. There are multiple ones. So, so first was that pre-hospital care should implement some kind of diagnostic tool or evaluation assessment in order to determine when to place somebody in cervical immobilization, and that placing every single person into a rigid cervical collar isn't necessary if if they are meeting the appropriate criteria to not require immobilization. So empowering our pre-hospital personnel to use that decision-making is important, and hopefully will result in less use of the rigid collar when it's unnecessary. Absolutely. Second, you said that you know, there are some case reports where people have deteriorated because of what was presumed to be rough handling. Some of the examples given in the issue were things like, you know, patients with ankylosing spondylitis and chronically rigid and immobile cervical spines being kind of forced down onto a backboard or having their neck forcibly straightened when it chronically has a curvature to it or, or has some other restrictive motion. And that can certainly be harmful to patients. And so, There has to be an awareness of what the patient's baseline cervical mobility is and perhaps immobilization in a position of comfort as opposed to just the traditional cervical collar might be a a better way to manage somebody in that scenario. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, you know, one of the things we talked about mentioned is a case report, as you said, of someone with ankylosing spondylitis who was forced into neutral, which is not where they lived. And that was an iatrogenic spinal injury from that. So yeah, applying these sort of uh, concepts of immobilization with, with caution. 
And then the last thing you mentioned was just the presence of deterioration does not mean that they were inappropriately handled pre-hospital. It just means that they had an injury and that many of these injuries have the propensity to go on and worsen because of just the inherent pattern, the edema or the vascular injury, and and it causes deterioration even in the pre-hospital scenario, which just makes it even more important to obtain that history from our pre-hospital personnel about what this person was doing at the time you arrived and what they're doing now at the time of your arrival in the emergency department and and how that might be different because they can progress even in that short transport period of time. So those are three very important points. But let's talk about now when they come to the emergency department. So in our typical evaluation of a patient who presents to us in the ED, we're going to obtain a history. What kind of things would be pertinent in in a quick history? I think always the mechanism of injury, getting as much detail as you can from providers about, or from free hospital providers, the patient, if they're able to recount anything as to exactly what happened. In particular, you know, things to ask about are what was the, the sort of loading of the of the neck as axial load injuries are particularly, you know, particularly prone to developing uh, spinal cord injury. And so is there any history of that as a possibility? The total speed of the of the vehicle, the you know, safety mechanisms in use, just trying to get an overall sense of the kinematics and how much, you know, what was the sort of, uh, what forces, what magnitude and sort of direction of forces was this person subjected to to, and kind of, to be able to anticipate what you might find on exam. And then as you said earlier, of course, a good history as to what their neurological exam was at the time of the encounter. And then what your you know, brief neurological exam is now. Uh, probably the two most important sort of uh, historical factors or I guess physical exam factors to try to elucidate with regard to spinal cord injuries. So that the approach to someone who was restrained with airbag deployment in a low speed motor vehicle collision would be quite different than to someone who was ejected from a vehicle and found, you know, a hundred feet away from where the scene of the accident occurred or something of that sort. So that that's an important differentiator. And then to the physical exam. So th- I like the way you detailed it in the issue. It was more of that A, B, C, D, E approach to the the trauma patient in in the airway or A section. What kinds of things are we specifically paying attention to? So I think we can, we can think about sort of the potential compli- airway complications of a spinal cord injury. And the first one is you can get mechanical obstruction of the airway from a developing hematoma. I mean, again, this is usually going to happen in the first, not immediately, but in the first 12 to 24 hours. But there are you know several case series uh, that have identified a, a relatively high frequency of patients who develop actual mechanical airway obstruction from cervical spine injuries. And so, you know, examining for voice changes, strider, things like that, and then making sure you kind of have ongoing monitoring. The second risk is that of, you know, respiratory embarrassment due to neuromuscular failure. And so a, a vast majority or vast plurality and potentially majority, depending on the case you usually look at, of patients with a high cervical spine injury are going to require mechanical ventilation at some point in time through their early injury course to get them through a, a period of, of neuromuscular failure. And so a good physical exam that, it, that you know, looking at sort of diaphragmatic excursion, their work of breathing, you know, how much volume they're actually moving, and then, you know, continuous cardiopulmonary monitoring to make sure that they're not going to desat is very helpful. Some people suggested using entitled CO2 to monitor for development of hypo, clinically occult hypoventilation, though there's no, no good data to support or refute the use of that intervention. Just remembering that that airway, that airway compromise and respiratory compromise is super common in patients with, with spinal cord injury and uh, evaluating for those complications early on. 
Good. So airway, edema, expanding hematoma, and then breathing, hypoventilation, hypoxia, and secretions was another one you mentioned, actually, which uh, is interesting. That's not something we commonly think about, but definitely pertinent for someone with a high cervical cord injury. And then on the circulation. So what kinds of issues might we encounter somebody with a spinal cord injury in this area? Absolutely. And I think this is a super classic, you know, conundrum of the patient who has an obvious spinal cord injury and is hypotensive. And the the discussion is always, this is going to be neurogenic shock, or is this going to be, you know, hemorrhagic shock? And both recognizing that uh, the features of that way, the A, you can have neurogenic shock with a high spinal cord injury due to disruption of the sympathetic fibers and recognizing the classic presentation of relative bradycardia plus hypotension, you know, necessarily having cool extremities or diminished pulses, as you might expect with someone who's in hemorrhagic shock with high, a high SVR state. And I think it's also just important to recognize the classic teaching that, you know, in the setting of multi-system trauma or blunt trauma, shock should always be presumed to be hemorrhagic first and, and neurogenic second still holds true even though you can kind of maintain a you know a degree of, of skepticism about that and be thoughtful about your resuscitation. But in general, you're probably going to run into more trouble if you start treating people with hemorrhagic shock with vasopressors than if you give someone with neurogenic shock a little bit of uh, volume or transfusion. Mm. Yeah, again, some, some great pearls there. So your classic spinal shock patient being warm, bradycardic, and hypotensive is kind of the board question there and without evidence for hemorrhage anywhere, but in the undifferentiated trauma patient, especially the ones who aren't able to communicate with us. So someone who might be intubated where the neuro exam is really mostly unreliable, it can be difficult to differentiate that from your classic hemorrhagic shock and a little early volume resuscitation is not harmful in that scenario as we presume it's going to be hemorrhagic before we finally come to the diagnosis. So that's uh, very, very important. And then on to the disability section, when we talk about the neurological examination, what kinds of assessments are we specifically looking for here? What, what's known to be helpful? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, in my mind, I break this down into basically you're going to be doing two exams on the patient. The first one is doing that immediate resuscitative phase when they come into the trauma room and you're you know, getting your IVO2 monitor, trauma team's coming down, there's 80 hands inside the bed. This can be a really gross evaluation of, of movement. You know, can they move their uppers? Can they move their lowers? They're following commands and all. And that's probably, you know, kind of enough. I usually get, you know, the, the lower C-spine, so C8 exams, like so can use flexor fingers and they grip and then dorsiflexion and plantar flexion of the feet, which gets sort of L5, S1 myotomes. And then typically during the secondary survey, we'll roll the patient and Usually check sacral, sacral motor tone or rectal tone, depending on on the case. If we have really, if you you know you're worried about a potential lumbar spine injury, you can do that as well. And that's going to be sort of the the quick and dirty primary assessment motor survey. And then if you do identify a, a neurological deficit, it's important to basically get a level at which their deficit is, and then try to identify if it's complete or incomplete, because those are going to have important prognostic and therapeutic implications. But that can be done a little bit later, not necessarily in those first few minutes, unless you really feel like you're going to have to intubate this patient right away. Good. Yeah, that's a, a helpful differentiator there. So, so kind of a rapid neuro exam for disability, and then go back during the secondary assessment and perform the, the more detailed neurological examination, assuming that the patient is still awake and able to comply with the exam. 
Absolutely. And the American um, Spinal Injury Association has uh, a very robust and standardized method for conducting a spinal neurological exam. And I think we included their their worksheet in the back of this issue, which you can refer to. It's kind of going through it all would be beyond the scope of this of this podcast, except to say, I think one of the things that uh, we probably, as a specialty, don't do as well as, as our neurosurgical colleagues would like is, is the actual assessment. So uh, whether or not there's sacral sparing, that is any you know, sacral nerve root function present, even in uh, higher injuries, is super important for the neurosurgeon to help them to decide, you know, to both to create the lesion and then again to decide on what types of interventions they're going to offer the patient and when. And so making sure you're assessing the sacral sparing is really important. So one is not just any, any rectal tone at all is important. And then assessing for rectal sensation. So there's two things. One is a you know, perianal sensation. And then one is a deep anal pressure. So if you do, do a rectal exam and press laterally on the rectal wall, can the patient identify any sensation of pressure? And the third is looking for voluntary anal contraction. And so those things are really the aspects of the of the anal rectal exam we need to focus on in terms when we're going to communicate with the neurosurgical colleagues. We believe this is a complete or incomplete lesion. Now the American Spinal Injury Association assessment is actually quite lengthy. It's uh, on page eighteen of this issue. Is this something you're typically doing as part of your secondary assessment if you notice a neurological deficit and suspect someone has a spinal cord injury? No, so I honestly usually defer the full ASIA assessment to our neurosurgical colleagues. I think this is an important evaluation insofar as it carries prognostic um, implications, it carries therapeutic implications, and the reliability of it is going to be greater when you know performed by someone who does this a lot. And so I'll attempt to find a level and sort of get a sense of where the level is going to be. It's more of a gestalt. Is this, is this high enough where I have to worry about neurogenic shock or respiratory embarrassment resulting from this injury is what I really care about when I think about a level. I don't get as detailed as the neurosurgeons, but uh, so yeah, to answer your question, you should defer this, the, the complete exam to them. But I do want to know, again, is it complete or incomplete? Is there sacral sparing? And then am I going to have to worry about hemodynamics or respiratory status of the patient? Now, interestingly, you know, part of the secondary survey is rolling somebody on their side and examining their back, palpating for step-offs, and then performing a rectal examination. And there's been some debate about the utility of that rectal examination in trauma patients, but it does seem, based on what we just talked about, to have greater importance in people who have neurological deficits than your typical trauma patient. Yeah, I think, you know, in all comers, routine rectal exam probably is not helpful. But if you have someone with an identified neurological deficit, again, critical to, to go through those steps. And once we're done with our ABCDE and we're performed our secondary survey, now we're on to imaging. There is some discussion about plain film imaging. Is there still a role for that in the emergency department or are we just using CT now as the default? That's a great question. I think that, you know, I'll be honest, I trained in a center where we did a lot of plain films and had a comfort. Both our radiologists and we as, atten- you know, as residents and our attendings had a comfort reading plain films. And so I think that there's going to be some variability based on institutional practice and comfort. That being said, the the guidelines from the um, American Association, the Congress of Neurological Surgeons, the AANS, I'll recommend non-contrast the CT scan as the initial as the initial step as was a suspected cervical spine injury. And so, assuming you have a uh, you know modern CT scanner at your disposal, that's going to be your number one tool. I think there is if you don't have that, or you know if you have significant problems triaging patients through your through your department because of the number of CTs you're doing, or there are some situations where 
you know, if you have a relatively low likely, you know, low suspicion for a screening or uh, a three view plain film may be reasonable. I think it's important to remember that in order to actually get a high quality film, you have to be able to see the C7 T1 junction clearly, which is oftentimes difficult. And so you can try some adjunctive maneuvers like a swimmer's view to get that. But that's going to be the main reason why plain films really fail in uh, diagnosing cervical spine fractures. And now this issue is specific to adults, but is there a role for plain films in children still? Did you happen to see if the recommendation was the same for children to just go straight to CT? Uh, there have been some people who've published some combination of, uh, you know, getting a, a high C1, C2 view when you do a CT head on a child, and then plain films for the lower cervical spine, because, uh, it's, again, it's easier to get that C, all the way down to the C7, T1 junction, and most injuries in kids are going to be high at the C1, C2 level. But I think the recommendation for kids is still to obtain, uh, if there's a high suspicion for injury, non-contrasted CT studies or and plus minus MRI is the initial studies of choice. Good. And then when we're talking about criteria for whether or not to even obtain imaging, you know, most of us, I think, are familiar with one of two camps, the, the Nexus criteria and the Canadian C-spine rule. Is there a difference in the performance of those two for screening purposes? There is. It seems like based on some meta-analyses and once one study directly comparing the two rules, the Canadian rule is more sensitive and more specific than the Nexus tool. I do think it's important to recognize that the Canadian rule is often applied incorrectly. And even like in some of the literature that's e examined the rule, it, it's, it's functionally different than the, than the Nexus criteria, which basically the Nexus criteria is that you can't have any of these high risk factors. And then the Canadian rule operates more like a own clinical gestalt, which is, do you have anything that makes you high risk? Do you have anything that makes you low risk? And so the presence of low risk factors is necessary to be low risk by the by the rule. And so I think some the probably the most common one is no midline circle spine tenderness. So that's a, the absence of tenderness is a low risk factor, which is reassuring and makes you can help. You know, if someone has no tenderness, there that that counts as a low risk factor. But the presence of tenderness doesn't make them high risk in the Canadian mm. rule, whereas it does in the, the Nexus rule. And so I think they, there are at least one study which which basically I think used, you had to have meet all the low risk factors and to consider you low risk in that study. And they found very, very poor specificity of the of the Canadian rule for that reason. But uh, yeah, the, the Canadian rule is, is more sensitive, more specific, it seems. So correctly applied, the Canadian C-spine rule is the way to go. <laughs> correctly applied would be even more sensitive. Also, you cannot forget the dynamic testing. And so certainly I recall one case where uh, a patient was low risk by nexus and so discharged that imaging and the, came back with the cervical spine fracture, of course, because we're just going to say M&M case now. And uh, the provider who saw the patient said, you know, they said they couldn't rotate their neck. You know, they couldn't look left, but they were low risk by nexus, so let them go. Uh, there is ambiguity on what to do with the patient who you're concerned about ligamentous injury, uh, who has a negative, a negative initial CT study. And so you have a couple of options in those patients. One is to, and these are all sort of outlined in the, in the just to mm -hmm. highlight that importance of dynamic testing and that, you know, someone is, has all the other things, if they can't move properly, they have to, you know, you have to strongly consider a fracture or some other uh, injury in that patient. Good. That's very helpful. When we talk about imaging, there is some limitation to both plain film and CT imaging. Specifically, we're not going to see 
you know, ligamentous injuries and some forms of edema around those ligaments. So there is still a role for MRI imaging in these patients. Is that right? Absolutely. I think you know, there is some ambiguity on what to do with a patient who you're concerned about ligamentous injury, who has a negative, a negative initial CT study. And so you have a couple of options in those patients. These are all sort of outlined in the American Association of Neurological Surgeon Guidelines. But one is to get an MRI to rule out ligamentous injury and cord edema. That's probably the easiest and sort of most, most fail-safe way to make sure you're not missing anything that's non-bony. However, of course, a time-consuming MRI has limited availability and may identify some injuries or some findings of, of, you know, that aren't clinically significant. You can obtain flex X films, which will demonstrate in theory if there is uh, significant instability and there's you know mobility of the of vertebral elements with flexion and extension, or just put them in a hard collar and discharge from the hard collar to follow up with a neurosurgeon. I think in this situation where you've got a negative CT scan but you still have a high suspicion for some other form of injury, it usually is one of two things. One is there is some sort of neurological symptom doesn't rise to the level of deficit, for example, paresthesias or kind of stingers, numbness or dysthesias in one of the extremities, or um, you know, severe, persistent uh, midline pain with limited you know, mobility. And in both of those contexts, my personal practice, and I think it's probably reasonable at that time to start discussing the next step with the neurological surgeon, whether if they're a sort of teleconsult um, in your, you know, if you have them on call in your department, or if you have it available to you, get an MRI because that'll definitively, you know, ex- exclude those, those etiologies. But before you're sending someone home in a collar or um, getting FlexX films on them, I would generally consult a neurosurgeon if there's some high-risk feature that you're concerned about. Yeah. And when we talk about high-risk features, we, we're thinking about more than just, you know, my neck hurts. You know, you mentioned severe pain, perhaps even some deficits or, you know, neurological deficits that were present and maybe have resolved, do those still make them fairly high risk? Yeah, I think you know, certainly neurological deficits, if they had you know, subjective weakness in their hand that's not resolved, is absolutely in count. And again, sort of that you know, sort of dysthesias or numbness or tingling or you know, those kind of symptoms that either have resolved or have persisted would be the things that uh, you know, want to get a neuro- neurosurgeon involved and, and obtain further imaging, even with a negative CT of the spine. That being said, though, a negative CT scan is really good for ruling out, for evaluating, you know, displacement, uh, prefertebral tissue edema or things like that that might signal an underlying injury. And so some people would say, I mean, there are some camps who suggest that even that essentially a negative CT scan is good enough to, to clear some, in the vast majority of instances, that there's really absent a neurological deficit or neurological symptom. There's no need to pursue further imaging. So I think there is really something of a gray area still in the in the diagnosis of patients with uh, neck pain or suspicion for an injury. And the, your pathways you're going to take are really going to be dictated in, in this one part by your resource availability and sort of you know, local practice patterns. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good point. If you're listening to this and you are trying to take home a little pearl from this conversation, it should not be that if the CT is normal, you're good to go in all occasions. It should be that you've got to apply some kind of clinical decision-making based on what the patient's presenting symptom was uh, or still is. And if there is a deficit, there was a deficit, or there is something that makes that person very high risk uh, for some kind of concerning ligamentous injury, then, then you have options. Just disregarding that clinical examination or that high-risk status is not one of them. You really should consider things like 
consulting a neurosurgeon if you have it available or placing somebody in a rigid collar, you know, a, a hard collar and discharging them until they can follow up with neurosurgery. We mentioned flexion and extension, plain radiographs or MRI imaging. So you still have other options. It doesn't have to stop at the CT if the person is high risk or has some kind of neurological deficit. That's an important takeaway. But what about vascular injuries? So this is kind of something, I wouldn't say new, but but relatively more studied nowadays as CT has become more prevalent and people are more comfortable obtaining CT angiography of the head and neck. When is it we should be worried about concomitant vascular injuries associated with these spinal fractures? That's a really great question. As you said, we've become, I think, much more aware of this and recognize we probably have been underdiagnosing uh, blunt through vascular injury for some time. The practice paradigm used to be that basically these patients all required um, digital subtraction catheter, ang- catheter angiography to evaluate for the injury. And over the past 10 to 15 years or so, CT angiography has really become the standard for making this diagnosis. Or rather, I should not say the gold standard. The gold standard is still, at least in guidelines, you know, nominally the, the DSA, but um, CT angio has demonstrated performance characteristics similar to DSA in studies. And so it's become, I guess, the go-to method for making the diagnosis. So who should we be worried about? There are a few broad camps. One is people with uh, cervical spine fractures that are high risk. And those are going to be C1, 2, 3 fractures. And then any cervical spine fracture that ex- involves the transverse process and extends into the vertebral canal where the vertebral artery runs, because that can um, suggest there's possible vertebral injury to the, or injury to the artery. And so those patients should all should all get a CTA. In addition, there are patients with lower risk fractures, which is basically everything else. And there's still a bit more controversy about what to do with those patients. So the latest edition of the East Trauma Guidelines gives a, a, a weak recommendation to obtaining CT angiography in those patients as well. So hmm. practically, if you want a simple turn your brain off answer to the question is, if you have a cervical spine fracture, you get a CTA. That probably is going to be a, a little bit more conservative than we have to be necessarily, but but if you just, that's that's the, that's the easy, simple answer. In addition, there are patients who don't have cervical spine injuries who are at higher risk for blunt cerebrovascular injury. And those um, patients can be identified using the modified Denver screening criteria, which is reproduced in the article. But basically, complex facial fractures, the four, two, or three, basal skull fractures, or patients who are really sick and not really explained by a CT scan. So if they have neurological deficits and you can't account for them, based on the presence of TBI or a, a, a spinal cord injury or signs of ischemic strokes seen on CT or hard signs of arterial injury like a brewery, expanding hematoma, thrill, or things like that. Okay, let's move on to treatment. So we've done our history physical exam, we've obtained some imaging, and we've identified somebody with a spinal cord injury. When we talk about treatment, we start at the airway with the ABCs, just like we did with the examination. Tell me about intubation, performing you know, airway maneuvers. Is there something specific we need to be worried about with this patient population? Absolutely. I think you know, intubating these patients is going to be a scary kind of no matter what you do, because you know, performing oral tracheal intubation requires manipulating the, the head to you know, attain favorable alignment to intubate them. And then you, that always carries with it the risk of mobilizing the cervical spine across injured segments and again, kind of exacerbating or creating a new spinal canal and cord compromise. And so the old adage was, I mean, by old sort of, I think Rosen wrote an editorial, I cited somewhere in here, but it was from like the I think 80s or 90s, basically that the that the rule of thumb had been these patients got a cricothyrotomy as their primary, um, you know, 
method of air raid control because that's the only way you could sort of debate them without mobilizing the neck. And it's probably a little more aggressive than we have to be. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's good evidence that from multiple case series over you know several years, looking at patients being emergently intubated with oral tracheal intubation, that it's safe to do if there's manual inline stabilization of the cervical spine held by an assistant during the procedure. And so that's probably going to be the, the best way to obtain emergent airway control in the ED is, is direct, or direct or video assisted orotracheal intubation with manual inline stabilization. We know that stabilizing the spine does sort of limit the ability to have the patient optimally positioned for the intubation procedure. And so there tends to be a, a poor glottic view than in the non-stabilized patient. And so I think many of us now will go to video laryngoscopy as our as our go-to because this can help us now get around that limitation a little bit. There is one systematic review of trials looking at different intubation methods in cervical spine injuries. And video laryngoscopy seems to be associated with a shorter time to intubation and a better glottic view than direct laryngoscopy and greater first pass success. Though the secondary neurological injury um, rates were similar and very, very low between all available methodologies. Some people would also advocate for if you have a stable patient who needs an elective intubation rather than urgent intubation, sending them to the operating room or doing it under fiber optic guided uh, intubation in the ER if you have that available to you. And that's another option for patients who, uh, who you're worried about minimizing the manipulation of the neck if you have that available. They're probably not necessary as it seems to be just as safe as using video laryngoscopy. So orotracheal intubation is safe and the use of some kind of video laryngoscopy device might actually make the actual procedure easier to do since your glottic view is typically not as good as someone who doesn't have that inline stabilization maintained. Absolutely. And if you can add in the bougie, it's going to make it even easier and improve your you know first pass success rate as well. Good. And then for blood pressure maintenance, a map of 85 to 90 is what you cited in the in the article. Is that right? So I guess the, the first thing is that, you know, as with as with traumatic brain injury, hypotension should be avoided in all cases because it can exacerbate the ischemic injury to the cord. So we don't want hypotension. And so re- guidelines sort of recommend a range of 80 to 90. The data for this isn't stellar. Um, a lot of it comes from observational studies that uh, blood pressure augmentation was offered as a host of ICU therapies to patients with spinal cord injury, and so and they all did better. But it's hard to know exactly which part of that of that host of therapies was was beneficial. But it's led to the longstanding um, practice of of offering blood pressure augmentation via volume loading and vasopressors to these patients. And then if there is some work being done on looking at actually measuring spinal cord pressures, so CSF pressures, and then calculating the spinal perfusion pressure, much as we do for TBI and the cerebral perfusion pressure, and targeting MAP goals to a spinal perfusion pressure instead of just a a blanket MAP. But this is still, I think, in the works and not uh, standard of care and certainly not what we're going to be doing down in the ER. Does that involve some kind of dural catheter of some sort to measure the pressure? Yeah, they put it, yeah, exactly. Put a lumbar drain in and basically just sort of transduce mm-hmm. the pressure off the lumbar drain. Okay. And so they're calculating spinal cord perfusion pressure by subtracting that central CSF pressure from the mean arterial pressure. Good. And then let's talk about steroids. So this seems to kind of, you know, pendulum back and forth, but it seems in the current scenario, the the recommendation is no steroids unless your neurosurgical colleague is asking for it. Does that seem like an appropriate summary? 
I think that's the most reasonable place to come down as emergency physicians is that we, you know, that steroids are, there's two competing sets of guidelines, one authored by the American College of Neurological Surgeons, or Congress of Neurological Surgeons, sorry, and another by the orthopedic spine people. And the, their take is a little bit different. The CNS guidelines recommend strongly against the use of steroids, whereas AO spine guidelines offer them as a, as a treatment option. I think in general, this is all, basically there's one study from the uh, 90s that looked at high-dose methylprednisolone and showed a benefit in their motor and sensory scores in some patients, but there have been noted to be risks, including increased infection and pneumonias and such in, in patients. And so it really depends on, I think, so the, your, your consultant's take on the data as to uh, what they're going to want to do. But in general, I think as emergency physicians, we should be avoiding steroids based on the recommendations of the CNS guideline unless you know our, our colleagues recommend, you know, want them. And if they do want them, I think they recognize that that's not out of the realm of accepted practice and not get all huffy-puffy about it. Fair enough. All right. And then let's just touch on the special population section here. You mentioned pediatrics specifically. So tell me, what are some of the considerations we need to keep in mind for the pediatric population? Absolutely. I say, you know, spinal cord injuries in general are really rare among the pediatric population. And the management is sort of traumatic. Injuries can be very similar between adults and kids. I think the there are a couple of EDL, uh, disease entities that kids can get that adults generally don't. Saiwara is probably the first and potentially sort of most commonly named, but may not exactly least understood of these injuries. And so basically what happens is this is a, a child who has a neurological deficit in the absence of x-ray evidence of spinal fracture or ligamentous instability. And so the thought is that in these patients that the that at the time of injury basically there's a failure of the stabilizing ligaments that has so resulted in transient spinal canal compromise and cord injury but without persistent ligamentous damage and so the basically we can diagnose if you have an MRI that shows cord edema or cord injury then you know there's been some, something that's happened and then generally these folks are ma- managed with immobilization for a period of time and some will require surgery uh it's a little bit different i mean in adults we oftentimes see something similar as in, in as in the central cord syndrome but in that instance you know, these are patients who have you know general pre-existing spinal canal stenosis and then a hyperflexion injury when there's you know buckling of the of the ligamentum flavum into the spinal cord itself causing contusion and so they generally have stable spines, but will have a degree of core contusion. But it's not because of sort of this transient instability or failure of ligamentous supporting structures, but actually because of the buckling of the ligamentum flavum on the already stenotic spinal canal segment. So different pathophysiology, but... Good. That, that's helpful. This is cases in children who have... This is uh, evidence for spinal cord injury on clinical exam without radiographic abnormality, but this doesn't include MRI. This is kind of plain film or CT radiographic abnormality we're talking about. Yes, exactly. And I guess the other thing that, that to, just to note about these folks is they can present sort of minimal symptoms and they can actually have progressive, the kids again with Saiwara, sorry to say, can, can present with minimal symptoms but have progressive deficits over potentially even days. And so important to, if you have a child with a, with a history, again, of any kind of a neurological symptom, a numbness, weakness, paresthesias, things like that, to take it seriously and consider obtaining MRI in those cases. 
Fantastic. And then the other thing that can happen is it's called atlantoaxial rotatory fixation, which is fairly uncommon again, but basically the, you get a subluxation of C2 on C1 in the sort of rotatory plane. And so the uh, lateral mass of C1 gets fixed anteriorly to that of uh, C2 on one side. And they present with this sort of classic, we call it cock robin appearance, where they have a torticollis where both their head is flexed and the chin pointed to the, to the same side. And this can also occur in the setting of recent infections, especially pharyngeal infections and minor trauma and things like this, and is generally amenable to close reduction and can be diagnosed by a CT scan, which shows a, you know, a fixed relation of C1 on C2, d- despite the sort of temps of movement. It's interesting that this can present after an infectious process. So differentiating this from run-of-the-mill torticollis would be uh, challenging, I would think. Yeah, there is, in general, you know, this is not going to respond to NSAIDs. So I think that, you know, the primary thing we do with kids with torticollis is give them some Motrin and put them in the corner for a few hours and go back and hope that they're going to be able to turn their head to the side. Fantastic. And what else do we need to know about the surgical treatment for these patients? One other thing to be aware of as um, providers is the controversies regarding timing over cervical spine decompression and fixation by your surgical colleagues. And in general, we're not really sure exactly what effect early versus delayed surgery has. So it seems that early surgery tends to have a benefit. I think it's important to remember that what early surgery means. So most studies, early surgery is in the first 24 hours. Mm. And so a lot of times these patients aren't going to be, you know, taken you know, right up to the OR in the middle of the night for a decompression in, the variety, in, in most cases. But just discussing the timing with your neurosurgical colleagues and making sure that, especially in the case of incomplete injuries where there's potentially some more, uh, might do better with early decompression just having that discussion with your neurological colleagues about when they're going to go up to the OR and making sure that your understanding of the timing is the same as theirs, I think is helpful. Yes, especially if we're going to be the ones counseling parents or family members or the patient about, hey, you need surgery for your neck, and it's an emergency, but it's a eight-hour emergency, not a you know neurosurgeon yeah. will be here in 30 minutes to take you to the operating room kind of emergency. Right. That is an important exactly. differentiator for sure. That, that's helpful. And these are the big bloody cases. And for most cases, the patient has to be positioned prone, hmm. which limits your access to the patient for any variety of other, you know, if they start to crash in a procedure, that their, their being prone really limits your ability to perform resuscitative maneuvers on the patient. And so they're, you know, generally difficult for, for patients to tolerate if their physiology is particularly deranged. So even if someone clearly needs a decompressive surgery or a, a instrumentation infusion, if they have valid polysystem trauma, if they're in shock, if they have, you know, abdominal injuries, things like that, those might preclude early surgery. And so it's always important to keep in mind the sort of overall context of patient status when discussing surgical timing and planning with your, with your colleagues and that you might end up just having to delay surgery to res- fully resuscitate and stabilize the patient because these are physiologically demanding procedures on the patient. And that's a wrap for the October episode of Amplify. Thanks again for listening. And thank you, Dr. Jera Almonte, for sharing your wisdom with us. As a quick reminder, the EB Medicine mobile app is free, and I encourage you to download it and check out the FAQ section in the menu and share your feedback there with us. Remember, it's in beta, and there are more features coming. And once again, if you're not a subscriber, ebmedicine.net, there is no better time than today to get access to that entire volume of information on adult and pediatric emergency care while filling all of your CME requirements. Until next month, I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Be safe.